James Mishner truly is an amazing man. He was born in February of 1907 in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. It turned out that we don't really know the exact date he was born because he was abandoned as a baby. We don't really know his parents. No, all we know is that it was Mabel Mishner, a lady who was widowed, who was willing to take in this baby that nobody wanted. She raised that boy as her own. She loved him as a son. She was incredibly poor. Mabel had to work very hard taking in sewing and laundry to try to keep a roof over her head and food on her table for the two of them. Growing up, Mishner never had, never had a, a bicycle, never had a sled, never wound up having a baseball glove. He had a pair of sneakers. When everybody else wore shoes, he was in sneakers, and the toes were usually hanging out. It was said that he was the poorest boy in school and the smartest boy in school. When he was 14 years old, his desire to, to see the country, to learn about new places, took over. It would be a lifelong thing. But when the summer, when he was 14, came along, he took off and ran away from home and for the entire summer hitched hike around the country, he managed to get to 45 states in the United States. He came back home to start school in the fall, and he did incredibly well in high school. So well, he got a scholarship to go to college. Four years later, he graduated with a degree in English and history. He became a teacher. He taught for two years, and then he got a fellowship in order to travel and continue the education. He went to Europe. He studied in Ireland, in England, in Italy. He spent time working on a cargo freighter in the Mediterranean. He toured Spain with a troop of bullfighters. No, it became this passion of his to see and to learn about the world. And he really was fulfilling that in a wonderful way. He came back home, went back to teaching until 1942. In 1942, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy. He was sent to the South Pacific in order to make the history to chronicle what was happening with the Navy in the South Pacific. So he was given access to fly all around the islands, wherever it was he wanted to go. And it was because of that experience that he would begin to write Tales of the South Pacific. The book would come out in 1947. In 1948, he would win the Pulitzer Prize. In 1949, it came out as a musical from Ham Rodgers and Hammerstein on Broadway, the South Pacific. Obviously, it was a huge success. And following that is when he began to write. He wrote his first book at 40 years old. 40 years old. And then suddenly he began to produce them. The next one would be Hawaii, the historical novel. And there'd be then Chesapeake, and there'd be the source, and Texas, and Poland, and um, uh, he just went all, the Caribbean, all over the world. He produced 48 books. They would sell 75 million copies. He became an incredibly wealthy man. He would give away 
over $100 million to universities, to libraries, scholarships for underprivileged children. It was an amazing life that he lived. Truly one of these rags to riches. Nothing, not even parents, to the kind of success that he'd ultimately have. But if you read his books, you start to see that that Mishner has some basic themes that run through all these stories about people all over the world. And later in his life, he was being interviewed, and I want to read you what he said. I really believe that every man on this earth is my brother. He has a soul like mine. The ability to understand friendship, the capacity to create beauty, and all the continents of this world, I have met such men. It all started, though, with Tales of the South Pacific. He wrote that book in 1947, it's when it came out, and, and it did okay. It sold 20,000 copies, but 20,000 copies isn't enough to retire on. No, it was doing okay, but some other people looked at that work and thought, you know, this could be a great play, this could be a musical, a movie. One of those was Leland Hayward. Leland Haywood came to Mishner and said, I'd like to buy the rights of your book. And he offered him $500. Mishner went away and thought about it. And he said no. It was a while later that Rogers and Hammerstein came to him and said, we will offer you 1% of all the gross receipts. Now, that's in spite of the fact that a few years before, Rogers and Hammerstein had offered one and a half percent to the author of Green Grow the Lilacs, which, as you know, became the musical Oklahoma. But for Mishner, they offered one percent. And he took it. And he will always be grateful that he did. When the show hit the Broadway in April of 1949, there was such a buzz. Before the first show was on Broadway, they had already sold $400,000 in tickets. After the first few shows had run, they sold an additional $700,000 immediately. The show would run for 1,925 shows. It would run for five years on Broadway. It would win 10 Tony Awards. In 1950, the touring company would start heading out across the United States, putting it on at all the different cities. Right off the bat, they were heading to Cleveland. They had 45,000 tickets to put on sale. They received 240,000 requests. Wherever it went, it played to these sold-out crowds. It was huge. And of course, now that everyone was seeing the musical, the book sales went through the roof and became a bestseller. No, it changed Mishner's life forever. The show, though, was amazing. It's been playing for all these years now around the world over and over again. We had a revival on Broadway in 2008. And our own Kelly O'Hara used to sing in our choir. She played the part of Nellie. This time it won seven Tony Awards. I mean, the show has been such an incredible hit. And I think it's fascinating. You see this big success of South Pacific when the fundamental message of the show is about racism. 
It's about asking those of us in America to hold up a mirror and look at ourselves and discusses racism. You remember the two stories. There's all kinds of fun things that go on. Beautiful music, and you do have these love stories, and you have these antics that can be funny. All this stuff about the South Pacific, but there's two love stories, and that's what the whole thing is about. It's about Nellie Forbush. Nellie is from Arkansas. A good, young, white girl who goes off to the South Pacific as a nurse. And there she gets down there, and one enchanted night, she sees this Frenchman, Emile. He's middle-aged. He owns a plantation. And she is smitten. And they begin a relationship until one day she discovers he has children. And the children that he has are from his wife who has passed away, who is a dark-skinned Polynesian woman. And for Nellie to look at these mixed-race children, as she calls them, she knows she can never marry Emil. He has these children. You don't do that back in Arkansas. No. She pulls back from the relationship. And then there's Joe Cable. Joe Cable is from Philadelphia, from an upper-crust family. He's a lieutenant, and he is down there in the South Pacific fighting for his country. And he gets to know a person named Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary is one of the humorous people in the show. And she adds some laughter and character. She talks about Bally High, this place of romance and love and beauty. And she has a daughter named Liat. And so she gets Liat and Joe together, and they fall in love. And she's very excited. She wants her daughter to marry an American soldier. She knows that's the way to a better future. And so she says to Joe, you will marry Liat, yes? And he thinks, there is no way my parents, my friends, the upper crust in Philadelphia would ever accept a Polynesian woman, a woman with brown skin, from down in the South Pacific? No, no, I can't marry her. That's what the story was about. Two love stories running in the same show that really were trying to hold up a mirror and ask us to look at the issue of racism. It's fascinating when you stop and think about the United States in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. During that period of time, we were struggling with racism, discrimination. For us in those days, you know, the majority in those days were the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. We used to call them WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. It was the majority of people. And who were we prejudiced towards? Well, people of other faiths. I mean, Catholics. Catholics were looked down on. Jews, of course, people who were black or brown, the Hispanics or the Latinos. This was the struggle within the United States. But very few people, very few people back in the 1940s had ever ventured beyond our borders. 
They hadn't been going overseas. That was not common in the 1940s until suddenly we had World War II and now Uncle Sam was shipping out millions of GIs, men and women all around the world. And now we suddenly were confronting all these different cultures, customs, and colors of skin all around the world. Asians and the Polynesians, Germans and Russians and French and all these different customs and cultures and colors. And the war was over and we all came home and the question was, how do we deal with all these differences? It changed us and the world. One of the songs, when I came out with South Pacific, that really was the most controversial song, it caused quite a stir, was the one you heard just a few moments ago. I wanted to come back and read the words to you again. You can find them in your bulletin. Joe Cable is singing the song, After he has told Bloody Mary, I can't marry Liat. I can't marry Liat. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made, people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late before you were six or seven or eight, to hate all the people your relatives hate, you've got to be carefully taught. When I read that song as I was preparing for the sermon, I immediately thought of our scripture lesson today that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. The writer of Proverbs was a very wise person because that is so true. How a child is brought up is how often they go as an adult. The things you were taught as a child are the tapes that play in your head and cause us to act a certain way as adults. The question is, what were you taught as a child? What are you teaching your grandchildren. We have to be carefully taught. Just two things I want to talk about this morning. First of all, you don't have to believe the things you were taught as a child. As you and I grow up, as teenagers, as adults, we get to choose what it is we believe. We look at the things that we were taught as a child and then we make the decision, is this true? Is this what Christ would have me to believe or do? You know, right now, you and I are in this year at St. Luke's and it's called um, the Kindness Project. What we have said that we're going to do this year is you and I have made a commitment that every day we're going to try to do one kind act for somebody. It may be for a member of your family. It may be someone you work with. It may be a stranger. We've given you bracelets to wear. I am still wearing my bracelet. And the idea is you do something kind, you move it to the other arm. I don't always find it on my right arm when I go home. 
We've given you calendars to flip every day with these statements to try to help you go through the entire year saying, every day, I'm going to do something kind intentionally for somebody else. And we're doing it because Jesus said, a new commandment I give you. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's why we're doing it. It is our belief, it's our responsibility to go out and show love to other people. You have the opportunity to look at what you were taught as a child and then decide... Is it true? As I said, when this song came out, it really did cause a stir. In spite of all the things in the show, it really deals so much with racism. It was this song that really got the reaction. When they had one of these pre-showings, before you take it to Broadway, they did it up in New Haven. After they had some of these first showings of South Pacific... There was a group, uh, a delegation of New Englanders who came to James Missioner and said, you got to go to Rogers and Hammerstein and tell them to yank that song. And, and so Missioner did go to Rogers and Hammerstein and said, you need to know, I, I had a whole delegation come and, and talk about how we need to maybe pull the song. What do you think? And Oscar Hammerstein said, are you kidding? It's what the whole show was about. No. There was a critic in Boston who wrote how Rodgers and Hammerstein needed to cut this song from the show. And he said, and if they decide not to cut it, they need to tell Joe Cable not to sing it quite so briskly. Okay. It traveled down to the south, came to Atlanta, sold it out. Everybody wanted to hear the music, to see the show. But there were some state legislators, some state senators, who took great offense at it and said that they wanted to introduce some legislation. I want to read you what the state senators in Georgia had to say. Though South Pacific was a fine piece of entertainment, that song contained an underlying philosophy inspired by Moscow. In the South, we have pure bloodlines, and we intend to keep it that way. We will introduce legislation to outlaw such communist-inspired works. When Oscar Hammerstein heard about it, he responded back and said that he was surprised at the suggestion that anything kind and decent must necessarily originate in Moscow. No, it caused quite a stir. Because the truth is we're all taught about what to think about other people who are different from us. And it's not just what white people think about other people. It's what every culture thinks about one another. Racism, prejudice, it flows all directions. Do you remember about 15 years ago? We had an incredible experience here at our church. I know many of you were not here then, but this went back. We invited Aaron Gruel to come to St. Luke's. 
Erin Gruwell was a teacher out in California. She went to a, a high school, and it was very low income. It was mainly Hispanics and Latino and blacks. They were all living in gangs. They were all prejudiced and fighting with each other. She was told when she started in her freshman year with her freshmen, she said, you got to understand that none of your students will graduate. By high school, they will all either be pregnant, in prison, or dead. That was the expectation. But Aaron got involved with these students and got them to start looking at the prejudice, the hatred they had for each other, and got them to start looking at the bigger pictures in the world. And they began to do some new things. And they wrote a book about their feelings and experience, called it Freedom Writer's Diary, that later got made into a movie with Hilary Swank. And, but before the movie, you know, we caught the book early on and read it and invited her to come and to bring with her about 20 of her students. And they came to come live in our homes. They spent the week here with us. And they taught workshops. And they came to church. And they participated in the services. Now, these were not the kind of kids that you typically invite to stay in your homes. People of different color, very poor, been a part of gangs. But you took care of them. And you loved them. You were so kind. You were so respectful. You treated them in such a wonderful way. And you all came back to me and said, Bob, these are some wonderful children. But what really surprised me was not that at all. It's what these kids went back and told Aaron that she later came and told me. These kids came back and said to her, we didn't know that rich white people could be that nice. (laughs) It's not that all they stayed with was nice, rich, white people. It's just that any of us had so much more than what they had. We all seemed rich. But they had grown up being told a certain thing. Just like we grow up being told a certain thing. As adults, you get to choose what you think and what you believe and on what you will act. The problem still exists in our world today. And let's just be honest. I think it will exist forever. How do people treat other people who are different from them? It's a fundamental issue. It's a struggle in our society today. We still struggle with the color of skin. From all sides, what do we think about each other? We still struggle with different religions. We still struggle with sexual orientation. How do you treat people who are different? It's a fundamental issue and struggle. And I don't want to try to share any kind of easy, simple answers. But what I do believe is that we've got to start where Jesus started. A new commandment I give you. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another as I have loved you. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You get to choose what you believe. And secondly, 
You know, the war reminded us that life is very uncertain. There is no promise of tomorrow. Life is precious. The soldiers who fought in the war, the families who were at home waiting on pins and needles, the war reminded us life is uncertain. No guarantees. Seize this moment to live and to love. It would be the issue of Joe Cable. It would be the issue for Nellie. That's what the story was about. Joe Cable wanted to love Liot, but mom and dad and friends would never accept her, and so he withdrew. He went into battle, and he would be killed. And Liot would be told, no, he's never coming home. That opportunity to love is gone. For Nellie? Well, Nellie didn't think she could love Emil because of these two children. She could not love him. And so she drew back and he went on the same mission with Joe and he now too was, was missing. And it's like Nellie in the show was able to suddenly go, how foolish. I had the opportunity now to love and I missed it. Because of prejudice, racism, I missed it. And now she grieves. And what she does is she goes to see these two children only to discover these aren't mixed breed children, whatever that means. These children are children. Lovely, loving children. And she falls in love with the children. And then, of course, in good Hollywood, Broadway style, <laughs> Emil isn't dead. He was just missing. And suddenly he shows up back home. And now Nellie knows what's important. It is seizing the moment because life is uncertain to seize the moment to love. And so the show ends knowing that she, this girl, white girl from Arkansas, is about to become the wife of a Frenchman with these children of Polynesian descent. This is 1949. You kind of wonder why it was that Mishner chose to write all these tales of the South Pacific. It is fascinating when he went down to go to these islands... I told you how he got to fly around from island to island. He went to one island that was really beautiful. And he wrote about the people and said they are the scrawniest people and they only have one pig on the island. The name of the island was Ballyhigh. But he decided to take that island and that beauty and mix it with the other islands he was going to and the people he was meeting to create this place, Ballyhigh, of love and beauty He'd been thinking about all these things and going and doing them, flying around till one night he was flying back home to his base and they got socked in in the weather. They didn't have navigation like we have now. He is out flying. He's, they're in this plane circling and circling and circling. They can't find the runway and how to get down and it's getting to the critical moments and finally they bring this plane in. They had missed the mountains but they crash on the landing. It's not a bad crash. 
everybody walks away okay. And I can tell you as a pilot, we have a saying, any landing you walk away from, it's a good landing. (laughs) Mishner survived. But that night changed his life forever. I want to read you what he said. Later at midnight, I went out and walked the length of the airstrip. Looking at the dim outlines of the mountains, we had somehow narrowly missed. As I stood there in the darkness, I caught a glimpse of the remaining years of my life. And I swore an oath that when peace came, if I survived, I would live the rest of my years as if I were a great man. I did not presume to think I would be a great man. I have never thought in those terms. But by darn, I would conduct myself as if I were. I would adhere to my basic principles. I would bear public testimony to what I believed. I would be a better man. I would help others. I would truly believe and act as if all persons were my brothers and sisters, and I would strive to make whatever world in which I found myself a better place. In the darkness, a magnificent peace settled over me, for I saw that I could actually obtain each of these objectives, and I never looked back. I would help others. I would truly believe and act as if all persons were my brothers and sisters and strive to make whatever world in which I found myself a better place. The next morning, James Mishner sat down at his typewriter and began to write the tales of the South Pacific. Life is uncertain. Choose to live in a spirit of love. Look beyond the prejudices that we may have been taught as children. Choose to live in the spirit of love in this moment. And who knows? Some enchanted evening, you may see a stranger. And you may find some people to love. It's in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.